You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. It's good to see everybody. You know, a lot of people are out today. Uh, a lot of people on vacation. A lot of people just doing different things. But God knows who is going to be here today. And God knows that, uh, that I was going to be teaching today, even though I didn't find out about until like a couple weeks ago. Um, but I'm excited for another opportunity to do that. Um, um, as Adam has mentioned before, like... Um, there are people like Adam and, my, and myself and Ben who have desired to become leaders in this church in such a way that uh, we want to pursue the qualifications of being a, an elder one day. Um, and part of that is being able to have the opportunity to teach because that's the primary thing that an elder would do besides praying for the members. So I'm excited for the opportunities to teach because it gives me an opportunity to be able to um, to see how this all works. And I'm, and I'm really thankful for the opportunity also to dive into the Word and to study. Because in it, my soul has been so convicted and so encouraged through the passage that I'm going to be able to teach you guys this morning. And it really is just a continuation of what we all learned last week. Um, last week, Adam brought a message to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. And in that passage, uh, could you guys give me like the main point of what he was saying last week? Give, yeah. (laughs) Right. 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 Anybody else? Absolutely. That's that's the really exciting thing about this passage that Adam was talking to me about as he was studying at work and we sit down on breaks and stuff. He would mention the fact that the grace of God in this passage was the foundation for everything. It was the foundation for the giving of the Macedonians. It was the foundation for um, the giving of the Corinthians. And it's the foundation for the giving of us. And as he mentioned last week, this was not planned, even though... This week um, and last week was a heavy emphasis on our giving of our resources to make potentially a new building more uh, more in our grasp because of our obedience to that. But that was not planned. It was all because of God's sovereignty that Adam would pick this passage months ago and then be able to teach on it. And then whenever Adam Vincent, our pastor, asked me to teach, I looked at different passages and just didn't feel uh, that they were the ones that I was supposed to teach. And so when I looked at his, I just read the verses after it and I was like, man. Those are good, and I want to I want to really know from my own life what they're teaching and what they what they mean. Um, so I had the opportunity this morning to be able to bring this to you, and I'm very thankful. Um, but before we go anywhere, let's pray. Father God, we just uh, we come before you again, Lord. We thank you so much for the grace that you've given us through Christ. I thank you, God, for the the grace that you poured out on the cross, and how that is the foundation for any type of giving that we do. As your followers and as your ambassadors and as your children. God, I pray that you would speak clearly through me this morning. That that my mind and my words would be, that would flow smooth so that your word could ring loudly in the hearts of your people here. And that I would not get in the way. But I pray that you would convict our hearts about giving. And that you would show us just a more depth picture of the foundation for why we do that. And God, we pray that ultimately it would all be for your glory. So that as we seek to minister to people in this community, the lost of our friends and neighbors, and also seek to love deeply the people that are in this church, God, that we would all do it out of the motivation of the giving that we've received in Christ. Father, we ask all these things in your name. So let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That's where we're going to be this morning. And I'm going to read... uh, All the verses that Adam taught last week and including the ones that I'm going to tackle this morning. 2 Corinthians 8. It says, For we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now verse 6 through 9, this is where we are today. 
Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So as Adam taught us last week, the Macedonians were people that Paul was teaching the Corinthians about. The Corinthians, as he laid the context, were, was a church in Corinth that he, he established. And he uh, mentioned a giving or a collection that he wanted to take up from the Corinthians to give to the Jews in Jerusalem, the Christian Jews who were poor. And they, they were the first to desire to do it. And they started it, but then um, they stopped. And a whole year went by, according to this text later on. And it talks about how they, they stopped because of mistrust in Paul and the things that he may be doing with the money. It also stopped because the church fell into sin. And so they, they stopped what they were doing. And Paul has already fixed all that in writing 2 Corinthians. And he's, he's, he's addressed all the issues. And in the first seven chapters, like Adam mentioned last week, he said, hey, all this is behind us. We're back on the same ground. Let's move forward now. But that giving thing that we started... Well, let's talk about that again, because we need to finish it. And I just want you guys to know about the Macedonians. And he explained last week that the Macedonians consisted of the churches of Philippi, the churches of Berea, and Thessalonica. Philippi and Thessalonica, we have studied ourselves. And so we know a lot about what God, through Paul, has taught them. And he was saying that these guys, they are an example for you, Corinthians, because they, in their poverty, in their extreme poverty, in their extreme affliction, they gave... They wanted to give to this collection of their own accord. And they were begging us earnestly for the favor or the privilege to do that. So there was, he's basically saying these people who should be begging for money because of their circumstances were instead begging to be a part of this collection. And he was like, man, this is, this is incredible, the example that they laid. And then he, he talks about how they gave themselves first to the Lord. And that was the foundation for that. And then they also gave themselves to Paul and to the other guys there. And so then... He picks up in the verse that we talk about today, in verse 6, that he kind of moves back towards the Corinthians and focus on the Corinthians. He's been showing, how about these Macedonians? How about them? Look at what they've done. And may that kind of press you and urge you to finish what you've started. And so then now he's kind of in these verses focusing back on the Corinthians. But Adam's main point last week was that by focusing, like Jake said, on the grace of God through Christ, we're able to give in reflection of his grace. So basically his point is when we focus on God's grace, we should be able to give in reflection of that. So let's focus on what God has done for us in Christ. And now let's give to other people in reflection of that grace. Well, what my main point today is, is very, very similar. Um, and it's in your notes at the very top. It's when Christians come to know and realize the extent of God's grace toward us in Jesus we will naturally and joyfully give of ourselves in response to his grace. So last week's is when we let's let's focus on God's grace. Let's do it. And now let's let's give. And, and for many of us that may produce feelings of, well, I'm trying to do that. I'm not really sure how that happens. You know, this may not be true of my life right now, but I, I want it to be. But what I'm saying now, that these passages are showing us is that when Christians realize and understand the depth of God's love, like we sang about this morning. When we, when we wrap our minds around that and God allows our hearts to see it, just a glimpse of it, then giving of ourselves will be something that's natural and joyful. We won't have to produce it. It'll be a natural overflow of what we've received. So what I, what I was looking through is this passage, what does natural and joyful giving look like? Well, natural and joyful giving in response to God's grace will always be a few things. And I'm going to look at them according to these verses. So let's, let's look at first in your verse, in your notes. And the first blank there is that natural and joyful giving in response to the grace of God will always complete the commitments we make. When we understand the grace of God and we fully understand what he's done for us, then the commitments that we've made to give, we're going to do it. We're going to finish them. We're not going to make commitments and not finish them. We're going to back up our words with actions. Let's look at verse 6. It says, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. 
Paul instructed Titus to finish what was started among the Corinthian church. As you know, in 1 Corinthians 16, the first letter that he wrote, or maybe actually the second letter, um, and how it lays out. The first letter we don't, we don't have. Um, but in 1 Corinthians, he talks about, hey, on the first day of every week, I want you to put something aside. And this is how you're supposed to collect. And like I mentioned earlier, different things stop that. And so now he's coming back around and he's like, hey, I'm sending Titus to you to finish what you started. And then in verse 10 as well, it says, uh, we're going to skip down to verse 10. It says, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Verse 11. So now finish doing it well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So Paul told the Corinthians that their readiness to desire to give should match the fact that they complete it. I mean, this is self-explanatory. Um, this is the foundation of what's going on, is that when you decide to do something, Corinthians, now it's, it's proper that in light of God's grace and in light of the examples of the Macedonians, let's, let's finish it. Let's do it. So this readiness that Paul is talking about is a, in, in the Greek is talking about a forwardness of mind. So anything that was decided beforehand in their mind, he's saying, go forward and now finish it. So when we give of ourselves, and this is kind of like the, the application part for us. When we give of ourselves, let's bring to fruition the things that we purpose in our heart to do. Um, our words must be backed up by action. Completion much, must match the intention. So I'm not going to spend too long explaining this because it's very self-explanatory. That the model here that Paul's laying out for the Corinthians is, hey, the Macedonians have given and they've given in this way to this extent and they're your example. But now let's be honest, let's finish what you guys started. Because you guys, like Adam mentioned last week, were the example for the Macedonians. They heard that the Corinthians were starting this and they begged to be a part of it. And so these Macedonians are about to come and visit you. And we've been boasting about how God's been growing you guys and working in you guys. So we want you to finish this. Um, because they're going to come and we want them to be encouraged by the fact that you've done what you said you're going to do. So last week also Adam mentioned that there's different implications about how this means for our time and our money. Like how does different things um, relate to our specific situation now, the timeless truths about how this relates for our time and our money. And I was trying to think of different ways that I could make sure that I'm faithful to complete what I've started in giving of my time and in my money. And there's, I mean, there's plenty of ways that I could sit down and think about how this relates to me specifically. And plenty of ways that you guys can think about it as well. But just for one, as I was thinking about, you know, as we go forward as a church into this community, we're obviously wanting to get a new building, but not for the sake of getting a new building. We want to be more readily available to serve the needs of our community. And in doing so, bring loss to Christ. But is our goal to just bring people to the Lord and sit them in our church and baptize them and leave them? Is that our goal with people? No. I mean, hopefully it would never be our goal. Our goal is to, to share the gospel with people, the Lord bring them to Christ, and then join our church and us disciple them and grow them and invest our lives into them. So a lot of, for me, when I'm thinking about giving of my time, especially when it relates to discipleship, is the first charge that I kind of learned from Paul in this is that if I'm going to commit my time to discipling somebody, um, I want to make sure that I'm continually seeking to to complete what I've said that I was going to do. Um, how discouraging may it be for someone who says, hey, you know, I want to invest my life into you. I want to give everything that I have to, to see you mature in Christ. And, you know, just things come up and I get busy and I end up just not completing what I said I was going to do. You know, that's very discouraging to the person being discipled. Um, but then I also was thinking about a good friend that I have too that's a, that was sharing a story about someone that he's done this for. But then that person just doesn't really want to meet with him. So for us, we can put an application like if we're going to give of our lives to people in our community and discipleship, let's complete it. Let's move forward and always seek to be meeting with them to do what we said we're going to do. But then also, if you're that person, let's seek to give of your time like you've committed to be matured by this person. Let's seek to give of our time to be able to to complete it. Um, and for my money. Um, if, if I purposed in my heart to give my money to a specific need, I should continually seek to give it and not be moved from my original purpose by inner feelings or outside circumstances. Because that's what's going on. 
the Corinthians were moved by some inward doubting feelings towards Paul and the outside circumstances of their sin, and they stopped. And so, like I said, I don't want to explain this too much because it's very self-explanatory that what we say with our words, we want to finish. That's the uh, that's a very evident of something that's natural and joyful in giving is that it will complete what it started. The second thing in your notes is that it will abound in harmony with other Christian virtues. And this is in verse 7. Let's, let's look at that together. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Um, we better understand this in, in other versions that when it says in our love for you, it really should, it should say something like, in the love that we've inspired in you or your love for us. So basically what Paul is saying to these Corinthians is not if you excel in these things, but he's saying you guys are excelling in everything. You're excelling in faith and in speech and in knowledge and earnestness and love. But see that you excel in this act of grace also. So this word abounding in the, in the ESV, it says excel. But this word is Parisio, and it's the same one that Adam was talking about last week that talked about the Macedonians. Their giving was an abundance of joy that overflowed into a wealth of generosity. That abundance and that overflow is the same word that we're talking about here. And he's talking about, I want you, or you guys are, abounding in everything, but I want you to abound in giving just as much. So that has huge implications for me, though, because I see, this is in your notes, we should seek to excel in virtuous character. So Paul is already saying, hey, the prerequisite is that you guys are already doing this. See that you do giving as well. But when I was reading this, I'm like, man, that, that shows that I have a huge responsibility to make sure that I'm excelling in those first things before I can make sure that excelling and giving is just as much. Um, Paul recognized that the Corinthians truly excelled in qualities characteristic of genuine believers in everything he said. That first thing that he said in faith, from the Greek we understand that it's a strong trust in and reliance on the Lord. This is a strong trust in, in God in the past, trusting in what he's done, in the present, in what he's doing, and, and in the future. Um, this faith is beyond just the saving faith that saved us in the past. This is a faith that's, that the Corinthians were exercising continually. That they were trusting in God's grace in the past and they're trusting in God's grace in the future to meet all of their needs and to sustain them and to sanctify them. These guys were overflowing in their faith. Another thing that they were overflowing with is in speech and in knowledge. And those two kind of go together. Most commentators are kind of divided on this issue. Some say that this speech, in other translations it says utterance, referred to the, the gift of being able to speak in tongues that he mentioned in First Corinthians. And that the knowledge was the ability to interpret that. But a fuller understanding is better seen when, when we look at the Greek word and it's just the word logos. And this logos is a word that means word. Uh, Jesus Christ in John 1 was known as the logos. I mean, he's the word of God. And, and in this passage, it seems that it's very consistent with 2 Timothy 2.15, which talks about being diligent to be, uh, be, to not be ashamed in God, but to be found in the word of truth. And so this is like the word of truth. And so this is doctrine. This should really be understood as doctrine. So these guys, the Corinthians, were, despite all the things that they had done, that Paul had kind of, you know, brought them back into, they, they were excelling in their doctrine and their speaking of these things. They understood the doctrine of God and they were able to speak it well. So these guys were abounding in faith and they're abounding in speech and in knowledge. This is the gnosis, the, the Greek word gnosis, and it, it's general intelligence and understanding of facts and truth. And this is the ability to apply doctrine. So they, they not only knew doctrine and knew the teachings of the word of truth, but they, they were beginning to overflow in the fact that they knew what to do with it. They knew how it applied to their life. And uh, in Colossians 1, 9, this is a really neat thing that. Paul is praying for. Um, and he says, And so, to the church of Colossians, From the day we've heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, 
fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul, I love this verse. Paul is praying for people. This is a model of how you can pray for people. He prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they will be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him and bearing fruit. So there's an, there's an evidence of when we understand God's will and there's that knowledge, it leads to us understanding how to apply that to life, to bear fruit. And that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They were abounding in faith. They were abounding in speech and doctrine. They were abounding in knowledge and how to apply that to life. They are also abounding, as it says, in earnestness. Um, and this is a Greek word that talks about being diligent, haste, earnestness, and striving after anything. So these guys weren't doing it half-heartedly. Remember last time we talked, we talked about Titus and the grace of God appearing to that brought salvation, but it also trains us to live differently. And then the goal of that redemption was to create a people who were zealous for good works, to have that zeal, to have that earnestness. Well, these guys were doing that too. They knew what that was, knew what that was supposed to be. And they were being diligent and earnest and striving after the things that they were striving after. And that's the same word, in, like I said, in 2 Timothy 2.15 that talked about being diligent. And they were also... Overflowing in love. And everybody should know that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is Paul's love chapter. He talks about love is patient, love is kind. He, he already talked to Corinthians about what love was. And these guys are abounding in love. They're overflowing. The really neat thing about this, this abounding word is that Greeks used it to kind of refer to a, of a, of a flower that goes from a bud to a full bloom. So it was almost like you're blooming out from that bud. And that's what Paul was wanting these guys to do in their giving. And he's like, look, you guys are already blossoming in your faith. You're already blossoming in your speech and knowledge. You're already blossoming in your earnestness and in your love. You're going from that bud. There's, there's life, there's growth there. And you're like, you're just pushing forward and going out with that. But what I'm saying is that you need to do that in your giving the same way. You need to view giving and blossoming in your giving just as much as you would do in faith and in speech and love. So that second thing that I was really being taught is that we should seek to excel in giving just as much. So we're seeking to excel in virtuous character, right? We want to be people that seek to add to these things, overflow of these things. But we also should seek to be giving and giving just as much. And Paul challenged the Corinthians to abound in their giving with the same vigor and energy as the other virtues. Again, he says, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you or in the love we've inspired in you, see that you excel or abound in this act of grace also. So coming back to us, when we give, let us abound in giving with the same energy and zeal that we use to seek to overflow in other fundamental virtues. So for me, like remember, time and money. When I'm thinking about my time, my desire to overflow in earnestness, like we talked about, my desire to be a person that's zealous for good works, you know, will naturally lead me to want to, to have zeal in sharing the gospel with someone. Someone on the dock at work, you know, unloading trucks, like it, it'll produce in me naturally a desire to earnestly share the gospel with somebody. But my, my, uh, my challenge that I've received from this is that I should excel or abound in wanting to give of my life to that person just as much afterwards. I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but for me, like, it's really maybe easier to share the gospel with someone and, you know, be done, go home for the day. But, like, I should have the mentality behind this that should this person get saved, the faith that I'm hopefully expressing, that this person will respond. Like, am I prepared in my heart to give them what's necessary in discipleship or give them what's necessary of my time? Like, am I making sure that my, my giving matches my desire to overflow and, and being earnest? And then I started thinking about my money. You know, I, I'm someone that by God's grace is growing to desire um, to know doctrine more and to know how it applies to my life. So as I seek to overflow in the, the logos and the gnosis that we talked about, and buy, you know, books about that. It should match the desire to overflow and giving to needy people. You know, and I was convicted about this because, like, Adam wants us to go through a theology study um, to kind of better prepare ourselves and equip ourselves about the doctrines that are necessary to, to kind of better serve our church as elders. 
And man, I'm just I'm kind of weird in this way that like whenever he says, hey, here's a doctrine study, and he, you got to read three massive books about it, man, I'm like excited about that. And I know that some of you guys might not be excited about that at all, but like I'm excited about that. Like, and I was like, man, how much is it? It's probably gonna cost me forty dollars to get all these books. No problem. I got it. You know, I'll I'll sacrifice something. I want to order these books. I'm 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 earnestly desiring to grow this way. But what was really convicting is that, you know, the $30 or so that I give for books like that should be matched by my desire to give $30 in another way to help someone in need. And that the, the term $30 is sticking out because we, Sarah and I uh, support a girl in Uganda, and it's $30 a month. It's something that to some people may be a lot, to others it's not a lot. And for us, I was convicted by my mentality behind it. Because even though we've decided to give, even though we've decided to support, how many, how, how many months does it just you know, come off the debit automatically? And I skipped a little letter that says, you know, thanks for your support. And how, how many times is it, does that happen that's not matched by just the earnest desire that that actually was supposed to go forward with that? So what I mean by that is that I was convicted that my desire to give in such a way wasn't matching my desire to to give in this other way, to know God better. It should be matched. It should be like, man, I'd love to study theology and I'd love to know more about God's will for my life. But I want to love earnestly to give to this need. And this is just this is just for me. This is just things that I'm learning. So my challenge to you guys is that as you were thinking about ways that you want to overflow in specific virtues, make sure that giving is the same. Like when we say that we love our kids, we want to just overflow in love for our kids and for the ministry here. We want to seek to serve them and know them. Well, we should match it with the desire to give of our money towards potentially a new building that allows that to happen. You know, we like going back to before, like if we're just saying things and not really backing that up, you know, to what to what worth is it? But remember, all these things are supposed to be happening naturally and joyfully, right? So this always goes back to understanding the grace of God through Christ. When we come to know the extent of his depth of his love for us, we're going to see that we naturally complete what we say we're going to do. And we're going to see that we naturally overflow in giving. And so if there's a problem that you may be experiencing like I was, that, man, some of these things aren't true about me, it's not a result of God's grace not being deep enough. It's a problem perhaps with our understanding of it. And probably perhaps with us really wrapping our minds around the extent of this grace. So the encouragement, though, because I don't want us to get bogged down with, you know, we've been talking the last couple of weeks about the things that we should be doing. Um, the encourage, though, is, is in 2 Corinthians 9, just a chapter later, in verse 8, it says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may be able to abound in every good work. I mean... How encouraging is that? I'm saying that Paul is saying, you guys should abound in all these things. You should overflow. You should move from being a block of bud to full bloom. But then he follows it up a chapter later and he's like, hey, and God is able to basically give you the grace necessary because he's aboundingly giving you that grace so that you can abound in every good work. So the encouragement is, is that our foundation not only is the grace of God in the past, but we're trusting in the grace of God in the present and in the future. Because as he's aboundingly giving us his grace, he's giving it like this passage says, so that we may be able to abound in every good work. So let's just try to keep that in mind is that as we're as I'm being convicted about this, I shouldn't be led to um, just get down about the facts that I'm not giving with the proper motivation or the right mentality. But instead driven to thankfulness that God is the one that will provide the grace that's needed so that I can abound to others. So the third thing is, is that natural and joyful giving in response to God's grace will prove the sincerity of our love. And this is found in verse 8. He had already said, but as you excel in these things, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And then he follows it right after that. He's like, but I, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So what Paul's saying to these guys is like, I'm not... I'm not commanding you to give. Instead, and like another translation, it talks about like, I'm putting to test your love by comparing it to the earnestness of other people. So like, we've already looked at the Macedonians. I've given you that example of how they gave. They were begging to be a part of this. And their earnestness to do it in such a way proved their love. 
And so what I'm doing for you guys is I'm putting to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it to them. So I'm not commanding you to give, but I'm basically kind of encouraging and urging you to give because of the example of the Macedonians. And we're going to see later that he's even going to use a greater example for why we should do this. So we should seek to prove the sincerity of our love by giving voluntarily without compulsion. And this, is, this goes with that first part where he says, I, I don't say this is a command. And Paul reminded the Corinthians that the Macedonians gave of their own accord. So it was voluntarily without compulsion. In verse 3, when Adam read it last week, he said, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. So Paul reminded the Corinthians that the Macedonians gave of their own accord. And he encouraged the Corinthians to give in this verse, verse 8. But he didn't issue a command. And we're going to see that this is the pattern you know, of giving always in the New Testament. It's not mandated how much or to what extent we should give. But that we should give in response to God's grace. And that the heart condition behind giving is always more important than the amount. Uh, the, the earnestness and the cheerfulness behind it is always more important than how much. You know, the, the story of Jesus and the, seeing the lady who gave all that she had was just a couple coins. And she gave more than all those other guys. You know, because it's a, it's a mentality of just giving voluntarily of what you have. And later on in chapter 9, Paul taught the Corinthians that giving was to be a willing gift, not an exaction. Let's look at uh, just a, you know, that chapter after it, verse 5 of chapter 9. He says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. And in verse 7, he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So this thing, obviously, all giving, when we, when we give voluntarily and we're not compulsed, it proves our love. And that's what he's talking about. Like, I'm comparing it to the earnestness of the Macedonians who proved the fact that they loved these Jews they never met because they, they gave of their own accord when they should have been begging for money themselves, in a sense, and they didn't. So when, when we give then voluntarily, we can be sure that the love that we have for people are, is proved, is backed up. And we also should seek to prove the sincerity of our love by giving earnestly without reservation. And this is in that second part of verse 8b, where he talks about, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. To give earnestly without reservation. Paul reminded the Corinthians that the earnestness of the Macedonians stood as their example. Listen to verses 2 through 4 again. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to the means, as I can testify, beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So he's, he's going back. Macedonians are you guys an example. They gave voluntarily and they gave earnestly. And Paul also taught that this earnest giving without reservation, um, he taught the Corinthians that giving earnestly will bring blessing. Because someone's reservation may be, you know, I want to give voluntarily, but I just don't have anything. You know, that's my reservation. I don't have anything. When he talks about giving brings blessing. And it brings spiritual blessing, of course. And it brings also physical blessing. Um, in chapter 9, verses 6, it says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. In verse 6, like we read earlier, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Let's look at, uh, you don't have to put there, I'm just going to read to you First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. This is talking about, he's warning people not to be lovers of money. And in this context, he's talking to the rich that may find themselves already have money. He's basically saying, hey, if you're rich, don't pursue it. But if you are rich, this is what you should do with your money. And he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous 
and ready to share. And this is verse 19. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So we know when we give of ourselves earnestly, it should be without reservation. And then in the reservation that we may not have anything or we may not be able to, hey, that's, that's okay. It's according to our means. It's not based off of a certain amount. Uh, we give according to our means without reservation, and it, it brings spiritual blessing. Uh, but then he also mentions that it does bring physical blessing back in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. But this physical blessing, he shows what it's for. Chapter 8, verses 14 through 15. Let's back up verse 13. It says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. So he's already talking to Corinthians. You guys have more than the Macedonians. You're, you're welcome. These guys gave when they didn't have anything. You guys have a lot. So how much more should you give? But even that reservation of... Just not really knowing you know, to what extent you could do that. He goes on and says in chapter 9, verses 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So what he's talking about is that this faith in the, in the past phrase, like you guys should exercise your faith. In the future, because God who supplies so seed for the sower to plant his crops, he's going to provide you seed and multiply it so that you will be able to produce a harvest. And so our blessing that we get from giving that it may bring is for the sake of others. So I'm, what I'm not teaching is that, hey, you guys should give. And when you give, God's going to give you money. That may be true. It may not be. But if it is true, if he's giving you more. Like it's an opportunity for you to continually allow that to funnel through you for the sake of others. That he's providing your seed for sowing. That you're the sower and his, his goal is for you to reap a harvest. And so he'll, he'll bless you spiritually when you give of your time and of your money. And he may even bless you physically, but it's for the sake of others. In Acts 20, verse 35, it's like Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders. And he's it's like right at the, almost at the end of Acts, it talks about how he's leaving. He's about to go to... Jerusalem, where he's going to eventually get caught in prison. And the Ephesian elders are really sad to see him go. And so there's this whole scene on the beach where they're just, you know, loving on each other and just sharing, you know, encouragement with each other. And one of the last things that Paul says to them, um, in fact, I'm just going to read it. Acts 20, verse 35 says, I'll just go back up to 32, set some context. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul, the, the last thing he says is remember what Christ said. Remember the foundation that he said. And remember my example. I've shown you with my hands how we're supposed to help and give of ourselves to meet the needs of others. But remember it's because of what Jesus said. That it's more blessed to give than to receive. And this blessing, like I said, is spiritual and physical. But it's for the sake of helping other people. Um, and I was, I was thinking about this as I was watching a show the other night. It's called that you know, Secret Millionaire Show. And there's a, there was a woman who... Obviously, it was a millionaire, but she kind of went, goes undercover to, to minister or serve in other areas along with the needy. And the whole point of the show is that they will normally see a need and then at the end respond and give a, a whole bunch of money. And it's supposed to be moving. And it is very moving um, to see how much some one person can have such an impact. But it was really neat because as I was watching this lady who most likely is a lost person who does not know the joy of Christ... Um, she saw a specific need that she was just there serving with her. And she gave $100,000 to meet that need. But it, it was really because as it was watching her go forward to get this, she was talking about how this was going to be the best day of her life. She was talking about how she saw a need she decided in her own heart. It wasn't compulsed. It wasn't a producer or her boss that said, hey, or, you, know, you should give your money. It was like, I see a need. And I've decided in my heart that I'm going to give. And I am excited about meeting this need. And she was experiencing the blessing of, 
of giving more than receiving. And she talked about how it was the best day of her life to be able to do that. And I was like, man, this woman is potentially lost and doesn't know the foundation of the joy of Christ and the foundation of his giving. And yet she still sees the blessing of being able to give to others, you know, more than to receive. And I was just thinking, how much more should I, a recipient of the grace of God, have this type of mentality when someone else who's just a, a moral person sees a need, decides to give, and experiences the blessing of doing it? Like, how much more should that be my goal, you know? So I was just, I was just really convicted by that and... And pray that my heart begins to change, that as I focus on the grace of Christ, my desire would be able to give of myself in such a way that that is very excited about meeting this need. Because it's a voluntary and earnest thing that I do. And Paul also encouraged the Corinthians that giving earnestly and cheerfully truly pleases God. And this is uh, in chapter 9, verse 20, or verse 7. We've already read this before. It said, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So remember last week, Adam was talking about the, the dreadful feeling that we feel in our stomach when we know we need to do something. And he was talking about our duty as Christians, um, as ambassadors of Christ, is to push through that and to minister to the needs. Like he was talking about how he felt that feeling in his stomach whenever he knew he had to... You know, he was being called by God to, to minister to his neighbors by throwing a cookout. Well, what I'm saying is that that is, that is true. At the end of the day, we, are, we have a duty as Christ ambassadors because we're not our own. and We've been bought with a price to give of ourselves in a very similar way that, that Jesus did. And, and that not in my stomach, man, I'm all familiar with that, all too familiar with that feeling. But what's going on is that the more that I see and understand the grace of God in Christ... I will naturally feel that feeling becoming a feeling of excitement. Um, there's plenty of things where I've given to of my time and my money, and it may not have even been connected to the grace of God, but I know that feeling of excitement. Man, I'm so happy to meet this need. I'm so happy to do this. And so what I'm saying is the more that we focus on God's grace, we're going to see that that becomes more of the natural feeling that comes up. And we'll be able to respond accordingly. We're going to say, man, I just love to do this, and I'm excited about doing it. So there's a duty that we have, yes, but there's a delight also that we should have. And John Piper, he talks about in his book, Desiring God, that that's the same way in our worship with God. And we don't worship God out of duty. We worship God out of delight. We do have a duty to worship God because he's our creator. He owns us. But we delight to worship him and how that, in an essence, proves the sincerity of our love. Because that's what he did for us. I'm going to read an excerpt from a guy that kind of... He summarized Piper's point and kind of put it into a picture form. I want you to, to imagine this in your head. It says, imagine a husband coming to the door to meet his wife with an enormous spring bouquet of, of roses, mums, daisies, and sunflowers in a two-foot-tall two vase, ringing the doorbell as if it, if it was someone else so as to surprise her when she sees that it is him. When she opens, he hands her the bouquet, and she leaps for joy to hug his neck, and he says to her, really? It was nothing. After all, it's been a long time since I've done it, and it's my duty to give you flowers. I mean, that's just what husbands are supposed to do. What do you think that he does? What do you think that does to the flowers in her mind? What do you think she thinks about every time she sees them? His comments about his action as a part of a duty as a husband belittled his wife's worth in his eyes, and consequently belittled her worth to herself. He should say instead, "Honey, these are for you to show you my deep love for you." You are to me the most wonderful, attractive, enjoyable person I know, and I'm so grateful to be your husband. My relationship with you is so satisfying to me that I had to show you by getting you these flowers. I appreciate that you, you are to me. These flowers will fade in a few days, but I want you to know that my love for you will never fade. Thank you for being my wife and my friend. See the difference in that? Oh my goodness. What do you think that does for his wife? Is that selfish to say that he finds great delight in her and thus was prompted to lavish her with flowers, praise, and affection? On the contrary, it proves that his love for her is sincere because he has intentionally, internally exulted in her worth. So obviously this stems from, in order to prove our love for others and have this voluntary, earnest desire to do this, we're going to have to first, like Adam said last week, 
give ourselves to God, when we exult in Christ and we see his worth and we see the things that he's done for us on behalf of us in Christ, we're going to naturally do this just in the same way that if we really truly loved our wife and that was the delight of our soul, then when we gave flowers, it would have that type of interaction that this guy talks about. But when we see it as just as a duty, well, you know, I'm supposed to do this. This is what I'm supposed to do. It kind of, it doesn't really prove, you know, that our love is sincere. Because the, the issue here isn't is it if you're loving, it's how sincere is it? So when we give of ourselves, let us prove the sincerity of our love by giving voluntarily and earnestly to others out of our delight. Out of first a joy in God. But let's make sure it's voluntary and earnest. Because like, like Paul was talking about, this is what proved their love. So back to me, example with time and money. When I tell someone that I love them and then voluntarily and earnestly give my time to meet their needs, I'm able to prove the sincerity of my love. So what I was talking about earlier with discipleship, whenever I say, hey, you know, I love you, man, and I'm, I'm interested in investing in your life and seeing you mature in Christ, um, and I want to do that. And similarly, like, really, that's exciting that like, you want to do that? Hey, it's my duty. I'm supposed to do it. You know, I love you, but, you know, it's just what I'm supposed to do. I mean, yes, that may work. And yes, that's true. Because at the end of the day, when we've done all that there is to done for Christ, we've, we've still only done what was our duty to have done. So we are, we are to do things by duty. But at the same time, for me to say, man, I've experienced so much joy in knowing Christ and so much joy in knowing what he's done for me because of his grace. That it is my delight to invest my time. Into your life to see you come to know this as well. You see how the recipient of that love um, feels differently on both occasions, just like the wife did with the flowers. It kind of, it proves our love when we when we give ourselves voluntarily and earnestly in that way. And I was convicted because Sarah had told me about a need that I could give my time to to move a friend of hers from another city to Columbus. And I was like, man, it's going to happen on a Saturday. That's my only day off. It's going to take all day long. You know, but I've, I've told these guys before that we love them. And, you know, if they ever need anything, just give us a call. And it's like, well, what am I doing? Like, what's wrong in my heart to where when I'm like, hey, guys, I love you. Give us a call. And whenever they do, I'm in my heart being like, ah, I just don't really want to do that. It's going to take up all day of my time and my day off. But how much more appropriate would it be than if I was continually focusing on God's grace and I was continually understanding the depths of it, it's going to be natural that whenever I say, hey guys, I love you, let us know if there's any time there's you know, an opportunity to do this. And they're like, hey, we need help moving to this place and this place. It's like, man, what an awesome opportunity that I have to express my love to you by doing that. I, it would be my joy and my delight to do that. And so obviously, like I said, it's discouraging on one side that that's not particularly true of myself yet. But it's encouraging that God has already promised to provide the grace needed to abound in every good work. So I'm, I'm going back to the fact that he's going to give the grace. And so I can trust in him and rely on him in that way. And then also with money. When I tell someone that I love them and then voluntarily and earnestly give my money to meet their needs, I'm able to prove the sincerity of my love by giving. And Sarah and I have also had you know, unique opportunities where we've been compelled uh, of our own accord, of course, to give to particular needs of, of different friends that we've had in the past. And it is such an awesome thing when we were able to respond joyfully and earnestly and of our own accord to be able to say, look, this is why we're doing this. And this is because of what we've received in Jesus. This is because of the grace. And this is the gospel that I'm showing you and I'm telling you. But the gospel isn't just empty words for us. We want to show you that it has really had an impact on us because we value you because we love you more than our own funds, and so we're going to give it to you. And it was such a blessing, obviously, for us, too, to be a part of that. But it was also a unique opportunity for us to prove with action what we were saying with our words. So as we have opportunities to give of our time and our money as a church to meet the needs of these people here, to meet the needs of our families, let's just remember that when we give voluntarily and earnestly, we prove the love. And the last verse kind of in that, in 2 Corinthians 8, 24, he's summarizing it. He says in 23, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So the last point 
Let's just go back to the text. It's like Paul is saying, I don't say this is a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love. And he's thinking, here's my example of the Macedonians, but now I'm talking to you about how giving earnestly and voluntarily, it proves your love. Let me think of an illustration. And his mind is automatically taken to the giving of Christ. And this is the foundation for everything. And that's why there is no other illustration besides what Paul is giving right here. This is the illustration of the grace of God and the giving of Christ. And he says, well, first, before we get in there, we want to follow the example of our Lord. That's the last point. When we, we will naturally and joyfully give ourselves in response to God's grace, we'll always follow the example of Christ. We seek to follow Christ's example by giving graciously to others. And this whole verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. For your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. But the very first thing that he says is, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You may not have known about the Macedonians. You may not have known about their example. But you guys already know about Jesus. You already know about the grace of Christ. So Paul described the giving among the churches. He's already described that giving is an act of grace. In chapters 8, verse 1, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given. In verse 6, accordingly, we urge Titus to complete among you this act of grace. Verse 7, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So Paul described that giving among the churches in that context, and our giving now, is an act of grace. But it's, it flows from you guys knowing the grace of Christ and what he's done. Paul illustrated that the grace of Jesus was the ultimate picture of the grace of God. And he does this elsewhere in the New Testament, like we talked about in Titus. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It's the foundation. The ultimate picture of God's grace was that Jesus came. So in the incarnation, Jesus gave graciously to those who did not deserve it. And like we talked about last time, this grace is unmerited favor. So this, this gives me a picture of the way that Christ gave. The grace, for you guys know it, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we also want to seek to follow Christ's example because the text says that he gave sacrificially. And so we seek to follow Christ's example by giving sacrificially for the sake of others. And this he had already backed up by the example of the Macedonians because he described that the giving among the churches was a sacrifice in the midst of poverty and affliction. When they didn't have anything, they still gave. It was their joy to give as a sacrifice. But Paul illustrated that the sacrifice of Jesus embraced poverty for our sake. Because in the incarnation, Jesus left the glories of heaven to reach us in our fallen condition. So what Jesus didn't do is, is he didn't become, like some commentators will say that you know, Jesus became poor for us. He came to the earth as a slave. You know, he didn't have a place to rest his head. You know, he was the son of a carpenter. His mom didn't have enough to offer sacrifices. That's why they gave him doves. There was no room for them in the inn. You know, he was a poor man. But in reality, like all those things are kind of seen as, you know, there was no room in the inn because there was a census. Carpenters were not wealthy, but they certainly weren't beggars. Um, Jesus did come and humbled himself to be a man, but his poorness wasn't the fact that he was socially or economically poor, because he was actually kind of just average. He wasn't a beggar. In fact, his ministry was able to support beggars, um, but he wasn't wealthy. So that's not what Paul's talking about. That God, Jesus, though he was rich, having and owning everything that God is in heaven, because he is God, made himself poor. For us, for our sake. And this, this brings to mind, to me, a passage in Philippians, chapter 2, that we all know. And it says this, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. So we can kind of see that this giving was definitely sacrificial on the part of Jesus. I'm going to read just a few verses from Isaiah 53 of the, 
of them prophesying about Christ when he came. Surely, verse 4, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid up on him the iniquity of us all. In verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. The court, because he poured out his soul to death, it was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. So Christ in his giving was completely sacrificial. He left the glories of heaven to reach us in our fallen condition. That's how he became poor. It had embraced poverty, and the Macedonians had already done this. So the example that the Corinthians find themselves sandwiched in between is that, hey guys, remember the Macedonians? They were extremely poor and they gave themselves anyways. And hey guys, remember Christ, who is extremely rich and gave himself anyways. You guys should give as well. Number three, we seek to follow Christ's example by giving generously to others. Paul reminded them that the giving among the churches overflowed in a wealth of generosity. He already talked about the generosity of the Macedonians overflowed. But he also illustrated that the generosity of Jesus overflowed to us by bringing us into his riches. Because that's where it didn't just say that he came poor for our sake. But it says so that you by his poverty might become rich. So in the incarnation, Jesus not only rescued us from sin and death, but adopted us and made us co-heirs with Christ. I'm going to read a passage in Galatians And it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is incredible. This is what I taught the kids last week, and I tried to teach them in a way that would make sense, so I took a lot of different... Um, parables that I knew and that man in the whole video that most of you have seen kind of put them all together to show the kids what this really meant and what I told them was is that there was a story of a king who was wealthy and powerful and rich but he was kind and generous to the poor and there was also an orphan in that kingdom who stole and his life was demonstrated by just wicked works and one day he stole from the king and when he stole from the king he fled the castle and fell into a hole But that hole was so deep that he could never get out. And all who fell into the hole never made it out. And at different points, different people came up. I was telling them, they were trying to tell the kid how he could get himself out of the hole by doing different things. But there was nothing that that kid could do to get out of the hole. But that when all hope seemed lost, another figure appeared up in the brightness of that circle. And it was none other than the king himself. And that the kid, you know, realizing what he had done, you know, expressed his sorrow for stealing from the king and the king told him that he would get him out and that the king did something imagine like unimaginable by taking off his own crown and his own robe descended down into the hole and got the and got the orphan and i was able to express them like in philippians did the king stop becoming did the king stop being a king by taking off his crown or his robe no he was still the king and jesus was still god when he came here he veiled himself in human form but he came to rescue us and bring us out of a hole that we could never get out of. So I was telling the kids, like, and the king descended down. He had bruised himself on the way down. But he grabbed the king because he grabbed the kid because he was strong. And he picked him up and carried him out of the hole. Isn't that a great story? And they're like, yeah, that's awesome. And I was like, but it doesn't stop there. And this is where the gospel doesn't stop with us. It doesn't stop with the sacrifice of Christ. It's as if the king looked at the boy and said, I know that you're in poverty. And I know that you have no parents. I choose, despite what you've done to me, that not only will I rescue you, but I want to adopt you and bring you into the palace to be a prince. And that's what Christ has done for us. He did not just save us, but he's made us co-heirs with him. He has blessed us immeasurably with riches and glory that we will see one day, but that we're experiencing now. So if Christ gave himself so much to that point, how much more should we give of ourselves? But when we fully understand what he's done... 
Our giving will naturally follow the way that he did and will give graciously and sacrificially and generously. So these are just the last points that we're done. When we give of ourselves, let us remember what the king has done for us. Let us have faith in what he will do. And let us take up his mindset, like Philippians 2 tells us, and give ourselves accordingly. So with my time and money example, I was trying to think about this. And there's just no amount of time I can ever give on the behalf of, for the sake of others that would match what God has given me. So therefore, I can therefore give freely my time abundantly out of the abundance that I've received in Christ. To the extent that he's gone, there's no time that I can give that could match that. So instead of being discouraged by that, I've been free to give. So I should give in response to that. And with money, there's no amount of money that I could ever give for the sake of others that would match what God has given for me. So I can therefore freely give money and resources abundantly out of the abundance I have been given. I want to actively look for opportunities to bless others. I was, I was thinking about on our fridge, we have a list about, it's a wish list, things that we want, you know, eventually to put in our house, like a new light fixture in the bathroom, you know, some items for a doghouse, you know, just all these different things that we've been scratching out over the course of the last year. And I was like, man, I, I, I looked at that list right after I studied this, and I was like, there's nothing wrong about that list, but I want to be the type of person that also has a list that's my wish list of how I want to give of myself for others. I want to, you know, help this person in this way. I want to make sure that I invite you know, everybody in our church over for dinner. I want to do these things. Like, this is my spiritual wish list about how I want to give of myself because I'm so easy and so inclined to make wish lists of things that I want to receive for myself. But what if, in understanding the grace of God, I naturally and joyfully created a new wish list? I had a new mindset. So this is the final thought and application. And in light of all these things that could be overwhelming or discouraging about how maybe our giving doesn't model exactly the, the model of Christ, let us rest in the finished work of Jesus. That's the, that's the main thing that we have here as believers. Let us rest. Remember that Christ has already accomplished every good work on our behalf. And this includes the good work of giving. So we're called to give. But we can do it as a delight because Christ has already accomplished it on our behalf. Christ has done everything for us. Therefore, when we give, we do not give to pay God back, like the debtor's ethic says, or to try to earn his faith. Instead, we are enabled to give freely in light of the grace of God. So let's fight the tendency that we have to give out of improper motivations. Let's remember that Christ has done it all for us already. And that we've been free to be able to follow likewise. That's why he doesn't give us a standard. He doesn't tell us how much to give. He just says, give cheerfully. That's what I want. Do it in, in light of what you've received. And, and allow that to come up with the price that you do. And the last thing is let us, fill to, let us work to fill our daily routines with things that remind us of God's past grace. And push us forward to faith in his future grace. We want to abide in his love and thereby obey his command. To love one another. John 15 talks about how he's like, hey, if you abide in my love, you'll obey my command. And obeying my command is that you'll love one another. So abide in me so that you can love one another and obey my commands. So it all comes back to abiding in Christ and understanding these things. So let's, let's try to figure out on our own how to fill our daily routines with things that remind us of the depths of God's love. Maybe it's singing a song during work like we sang this morning. Maybe it's memorizing passages about like Isaiah 53, the fact the man of sorrows was crushed on our behalf. Maybe it's all these things that we do to fill our daily routines with these things. So that in knowing it and in meditating on it and in, in realizing it, we will find that we will naturally and joyfully give of ourselves in response. So that's the charge. God wants us to give. He desires that. We want to give in a way that honors that desire. And we do that by focusing on the grace of God like Adam talked about last week. But coming to really fully and truly knowing it so that it affects us naturally. So let's pray and Ben's going to come up and kind of conclude our service. But I know that's a lot. I know that I've been talking for a long time. I'm still working on working it down less than I was last time. So that's good. But besides the fact of how long it takes, like this is something that, that we've got to understand. And it just led me to tears yesterday as I was thinking about the extent of God's grace for me. It's how silly is it for me to not want to mow my neighbor's grass for because it's going to take up two hours of my time? Or how silly is it for me to not want to help someone move to another city because it's going to take up one of my days? Like the distance that Christ came for me 
is immeasurable compared to the distance that I could go for someone else. So how silly is that? But I can seek to change that by trusting in God's future grace and in his past grace. So let's pray. Father God, I come before you, Lord, and I thank you so much for the opportunity that we've had to be able to look at this passage. We thank you for the last two weeks and how they've given us a picture of the Macedonians and how they gave despite their afflictions. They're real-life examples of what people, when they understand God's grace, how they respond to giving. And joyfully, out of they beg to do it because of their abundance of joy. And then sandwiched in between that, we find ourselves in between the other extreme example of Christ that he had everything and, and set it all aside to reach us for our sake. God, I thank you so much for the extent of that. I confess that my own heart does not realize the extent of that. But I pray that you would help me fill my daily routines with things that will remind me of your past grace and push me forward to your future grace. I pray that for all of us. So that as we give of ourselves and our time and our money specifically towards the future of our church, discipling other people or giving of our financial resources to help meet needs around the world, that we do it naturally and joyfully as we respond to the grace that we've come to know and love and cherish. And that's only going to happen by a working of your spirit. And so God, we pray and beg uh, that as you've already promised to richly give us and abound us with grace so that we can abound with others, that you would abound it in our hearts this morning. Um, that through my feeble attempts, God, that people would be led to Read this word, go back over this, look at the example of Christ in Isaiah 53 and Philippians 2, and really just know and believe the extent of your grace. We love you so much and we are thankful for that grace so that we can have a purpose in this life and we give of ourselves to you joyfully and earnestly and voluntarily this morning um, as our delight and not our duty. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.